I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the Green Notebook of British Army Officer Lieutenant Colonel Henry Willie. I've always been interested in innovation in the military because at the end of the day, innovation is about solving problems with solutions that are different than what we were doing before. And what I've learned over time is that units that do this well are led by leaders who promote a culture that makes it okay to question the status quo. And questioning the status quo doesn't always feel comfortable because change is hard. And as I've gotten to know Henry over the last year and speak to people who've seen him in action, I couldn't think of a better leader in my military and his to talk about innovation. And I've learned so much from him in just a short amount of time as we've exchanged notes as we both prepare to command organizations in our respective militaries. So I'll let Henry share his background with you, which he does in the interview. But if you want to hear more about Henry's ideas on innovation and technology, I encourage you to listen to a podcast that he co-hosted called Reimagining Defense. And the ideas that you'll hear in it are absolutely brilliant. Anyways, I'm really excited to share with you this special episode dedicated to the topic of innovation. So please welcome to the show, my brother from across the pond, Henry Willie. Hey, Jay. Thanks very much for having me along. Henry, I'm really excited about our conversation today. You know, we've talked a couple times over the summer about the topic of innovation. And so before we dive into the interview, could you share with our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure, Joe. I'm just a simple soldier, really, you know, commissioned into the infantry, into the Passion Regiment in 2003. And then, you know, like a lot of our cohort, rode that operational wave for the sort of early part of my career. And it was really as a, as a squadron commander in 2015 that I first started thinking deeply about innovation and technology and digital and stuff. And, you know, they say adversity breeds creativity. And, and the problem that our squadron had at the time was like, how do we get information out of an ISIS-held city? And at the time, I was reading a lot of books about startups and uh, disruption and so on. And so we sort of started to ask ourselves, 
provocations like, hey, you know, how would Waze create an army of informers? Or, you know, how might TripAdvisor give you a five-star indicating of which buildings to target? And on the back of that, with a lot of luck, we came across a refugee from this city who actually had a degree in computer science from Colorado Denver University. And we sat him like shoulder to shoulder with one of our top targeteers and uh, conscious of, uh, you know, this is a podcast in about five weeks, they built an application that gave us insights and ground truth that was sort of unprecedented and allowed us to sort of conduct our first strike a couple of weeks later. And that image of seeing like a world-class user and a great technologist sat shoulder to shoulder and delivering something really made an impression on me. And it was on the back of that, that I basically wrote a one-page pitch to my boss saying, how might we improve innovation in defense by seconding to a world-class innovative company? And uh, I was extremely lucky to spend a year with a sort of prestigious global technology company. It was 10 months in the UK, two months in Silicon Valley. And then on the back of that, uh, bumped into a guy called General Sir Chris Deverell, who headed up our strategic command. And he said, hey, I'm setting up this innovation unit called the J-Hub. Would you like to head it up? And I said, I'm in the army. Yes, sir. And I did that for a couple of years. And then following that, didn't want to follow the herd to uh, staff college. So I went to a thing called the Army Advanced Development Program, which sort of teaches business school, business skills, partners with McKinsey. Which brings us up to about modern day where, like you, Joe, I'm on the cusp of taking command. Yeah. And also, you did some time in Afghanistan recently, right? Yeah. I was hugely fortunate to spend time on General Miller's staff. I've got a little story to sort of weave in later about that. Hopefully, it'll bring some of the stuff we'll talk about to life. That's great, which is how we first met. He told me that we have a lot in common, and so we, we should talk. And so uh, I was great to, to get to know you. Now, you mentioned that you were working at something called the J-Hub. You know, for our, our listeners in the, in the U.S. military, could you explain what that is? And then if you know if we have an equivalent of that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, British Army in a sort of oversimplified way, there's sort of four big chunks, Army, Navy, Air Force, and then Strategic Command. And Strategic Command does a lot of the glue. So it does, you know, the computers, the med special forces, all the things that are sort of interlinked. And the J-Hub, and of course, I'd say this, I used to head it up, but um, I think it's one of the best innovation units in strategic command. You know, if you don't back your team, no one else will. And in terms of what it's closest to on the US side, it's probably, you know, DIUX, or, or I think it's called DIU now. So the sort of the sweet spot that it's looking for in terms of innovation is dual-use technology that can be put into what you guys call, you know, the warfighter's hands at pace. But, you know, perhaps the best way to describe it, Joe, is as I would if you were a sort of, you know, a user, if you had come into where we were working and said, hey, you know, what can your innovation unit do for me? And I'd say, that, you know, there's three things. The first thing is that we'll connect you with world-class technology and talent. The second thing is we'll fund and accelerate your pilots. And the third thing is that we'll use Strategic Command's Innovation Board to scale your pilot if it's successful. And, you know, this is it's really important to have a concrete offer for the people that you're working with. We're so busy in the military, and you've got to realize that ultimately you are in a competition for people's time and attention. So having a concrete offer where we can go, hey, look, you know, we're connected to eight of the top venture capitalists in the UK and their portfolio, which runs into the hundreds. 
You know, we've got two million a year to fund your pilots and a commercial officer that can guide you through the process. And hey, you know, if the data is good from the pilot, we're going to co-pitch together in front of a four-star and his innovation board, which sits every quarter. And if it's good, you know, you're going to get the money on the day to be able to put into that project. Probably a final thing to just mention about it to help your listeners visualize it. It was sort of a bit of a cultural quirk in so far that, you know, we weren't behind the barbed wire in the military base. We were put out in a place called Aldgate East at the time in uh, East London in a WeWorks office. You know, everyone wore civilian clothes, called each other by their first names. And that just made it really easy for, uh, you know, those that we wanted to work with from the technology side to come and work with us. When you talk about innovation, Henry, you know, I, I think about it a lot. And, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, there was like this, I felt like there was this big push in the U.S. military for people to be innovative, but it was kind of like, what? So I, I thought about this a lot. And I think there's like, in my opinion, there's big innovation with a big eye and small innovation with a little eye. And when it comes down to it, innovation is about solving a problem and bringing a solution that makes you more effective, more efficient. And so I think a lot of times we get lost on the big eye, the big innovation, but there's a lot of stuff that we could do at the unit level, even if we don't have the backing of DIU or J-Hub, just to be innovative. So I guess I said all that just to kind of ask you, like, wh where do you sit on like the definition of innovation? Yeah, Joe, completely agree with you. You know, ultimately, it's about getting stuff done and making a difference for the user. The actual definition we had for the J-Hub was capability into the hands of the user at pace. You know, that sounds simple, but it's not easy, especially in defense. And it's worth just picking out a couple of words from that sentence. So in terms of delivery, we're not talking about invention here. The great uh, test that General Chris Deverell sort of set to us was that an innovation will not be judged as success until it's in the hands of the user. I used to get really frustrated going around saying some of the great work that the scientists were doing, and you would say, hey, look, looking at this product, X or Y, X, Y, or Z, and they were like, yeah, we've got something that can do that. I'm like, well, great, where is it? How come I haven't used it? And it's like, oh, it's still on the workbench. And so the speed at which we get something in is really important as well. Now, when you were talking about J-Hub, you know, you, you talked about civilian clothes, you talked about going by first name. And so, you know, what made me think of was, was this idea of a culture, an organizational culture. So based off your experience, what are some of the factors that need to be present for an organization to be innovative? Yeah, sure. So here's the first thing, like you don't get to decide whether you're innovative or not. You know, that's only a label that is reserved for users that they can apply to you. And in fact, you know, I think the problem now is that innovation, you know, even when I hear it myself, it sort of makes you sick in the mouth a bit because so many people talk about it. You know, I think we should be much more about, don't tell me, show me. Let's actually see what's going on. But to your point about what can we do, you know, perhaps a few humble thoughts from the J-Hub, acknowledging that all models are wrong and some are useful, but I would argue that there are some tried and tested design principles out there that you see common to many successful teams that deliver value to the users. So one of the things, and we had these sort of written down, you know, one of the things we used to talk about is like small team dynamics. So the actual, you know, 10 person team that we ran, that was tri-service, there were different background and skills, and they're all in the same room together. And some of those people, what I would call the vital few 
were absolutely instrumental in making a difference. And it's not, you know, the male pale and stale guys, you know, talk loudly from a sort of combat experience that make the difference. It's the people like, you know, the finance officer and the commercial officer that can actually pull this stuff through. I think, you know, when you sort of visualize trying to get stuff done and innovation, you know, it's like a funnel. What people want to do is they keep wanting to do top of funnel stuff. Let's go talk to more technology companies and let's, you know, go and play with more users. The actual bottleneck, the rate limit is like, where is there a commercial officer that can actually help get that product to market? And the way I'd also sort of, you know, look at this is the reason why, say, a special forces patrol is successful because it follows exactly the same principle of small team dynamics. It's got all the core skills, med, dem, dog, JTAC, you name it, in a small team that can have disproportionate effect. So that would be one. Another one, like a slightly cheesy line I brought back from my time in uh, Silicon Valley is, you know, your network is your net worth. Going back to that Mel Pale and Stale thing, it's also about like diversity. So we were very lucky that we had these sort of eight venture capitalists that gave us access into the market. And then very simply, you know, you can do a lot of good innovation just by copying. You know, we used to draft off their portfolio. And what I mean by that is you just ask them, hey, what are you investing in? You know, what's caught your eye? And you've got to remember these people like look at technology for a living. We don't. But I have the intellectual humility there. You know, one of our guys looked at 400 companies a year and you invested in three to four. Being interested in the sort of three to four that he looked at gives you a much better and a much higher chance of actually finding a decent technology that's going to make a difference. And then the final one I'd say in terms of what you can do and think about from a personal level is that old line of ideas are easy, but execution is everything. It goes back to that funnel point. You've got to look at what you're doing as end-to-end process and really focus on the basics of execution in order to make sure that you can deliver for the user. Often it's the boring but important stuff that makes all the difference. I really appreciate what you said about the network and the diversity of that network. I was just thinking back in units I've served in, you know, like there were times where we were faced with a problem and, you know, it tended that there was a lot of combat arms officers in the room and everybody had the same way of thinking because we all had the same experiences. And then there'd be this quiet introvert in the corner who was maybe a chemical officer and nobody ever really paid this attention to this person or asked him any questions. And he was the person who had the answer to the problem we were trying to solve. And he actually had a set of skills that nobody had ever asked him about. This particular problem we were looking at required just like advanced level Microsoft Excel skills to be able to manipulate, to solve this thing. And this guy had it. And so I think a lot of times we get stuck with the people who are just like us. And those are the people that we want to gravitate towards. But one of the keys to having an effective team is just embracing everybody, getting to know each other and finding out what skill sets everybody brings to the table. Because there could be something that you weren't seeing, like that very generic example I gave of the chemical officer. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, And there's uh, an author out there called Matthew Saeed who wrote a book called Rebel Ideas. And in it, he talks about organizations like ours being individually intelligent, collectively stupid. You know, you've got a lot of bright people, but they don't look very different to each other. So actually, you know, the collective IQ of the organization is actually quite low. One of the things that one of our previous interviews built that for retired command sergeant major, and he said that one of the roles of a leader is to bring the collective together. 
to bring everybody's diverse skill sets together to solve a problem. And so what would you say a leader should do? So like they want to create an organization that, that is innovative. They want to be able to solve problems. What should a leader do to be able to influence that within the organization? Sure. So there's a few things. The first is like, have a look in your diary. Actually, how much time are you putting into trying to progress innovation in your organization? Hey, you know, real quick for American listeners, I spend a lot of time overseas with my British counterparts. So a diary is, is the same thing as the calendar, the schedule. And if he says cookhouse, that's the dining facility. I'm just going to go ahead and preempt that one. So I don't have to interrupt you again, Henry. Jay, I, I forgot how bilingual you were, buddy. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry for interrupting. Hey, but like, here's the thing. Yeah. So if you hear a senior leader, you know, waxing lyrical about innovation, how important it is and how it's one of their, their main priorities, like go into their diary and just like see how much they're committing to that. You know, how much skin in the game do they have? We're extremely fortunate, you know, in strategic command. First of all, we had, you know, Chris Deverell, who was the sort of author of uh, the J-Hub. And then, you know, now... General Sir Patrick Sanders has continued to carry the torch. You know, these people are putting their personal four-star time into it. You know, General Patrick, every quarter sits down and chairs that meeting with the other two and three stars where they will uh, give money towards those projects that have been successful. So, you know, if you want to make it your number one priority, it should probably be reflected like that in your diary. Another thing I'd say is, you know, no one teaches you innovation. It's not on, on the syllabus at school. So you've got to have a real hunger to learn. And you know, you mentioned General Miller earlier. I think he's one of the best examples of this. You know, the dude reads a lot because he's curious and he's interested. And so, you know, that's one of the hacks is like, there are many bright people out there that have written some really good stuff on innovation. Just pick up a book and see what you can learn. And equally, you know, create a network that allows you to bounce off their ideas and will support you as well. And then you come into some of the sort of harder concrete parts of it. Like you need resources. You need to get out there and hustle. People, money, permissions. It's not going to come unless you're effectively that sort of salesman for your team trying to get the results. One of the ways I sort of think about it is everything you do every minute of the day, is this going to make the boat go faster? We used to have people come up to us, you know, in the team when they join you and they'd be like, oh, there's a great conference or symposium I need to go to. And, you know, I was pretty ruthless. I was like, from a user's perspective, will that increase or decrease the likelihood of getting a capability into their hands? There is a lot of innovation theater out there and you've got to be comfortable with saying no. I think as a final one, as a leader in any organization, you've got to beware of the hippo in the team, which is in your team is probably yourself. And by that, I mean highest paid person's opinion. So in the absence of data, if you're the senior in the room, if you don't watch your sort of your biases and team dynamics, you're going to end up making all the decisions. And uh, I'll give you a quick story about how I did that really badly, but it turned out in a good way. So uh, I had this guy on our, uh, on our team is sort of doctor by background, real superstar. And I set him this sort of 10x challenge. So, you know, Go find something that you can increase the impact for the user by an order of magnitude of 10. And he came back sort of a couple of weeks later with, you know, 15 or so different options. And we, we disagreed over what the number one thing was that he should go after. And I sort of said to him, okay, hey, look, I'm just a single uh, data point. So let's get the rest of the team together. 
in a couple of days, you can pitch to them and uh, ultimately whatever they decide will go with that. And um, annoyingly, you know, he's very charismatic and he's a great communicator and they all went with his idea over mine. And that idea, you know, effectively he set up this coding scheme and he has, you know, pretty much single-handedly increased the number of coders by 30-fold in defense. And if he had gone for my idea, that certainly wouldn't have happened. So it goes back to your, like, chemist story in the way. It's like, have the intellectual humility to realize that you don't know everything. And particularly, you know, as you start talking digital and technology, there's often others in the room who are often younger than yourself who know a hell of a lot more about it than you do. I'd like to double-click on a couple of things that you said and draw those out a little bit. Matter of fact, that phrase, double-click, I've always wanted to say it on the podcast, and I figured it'd be a good one to use in this innovation one. So you talked about General Miller. You talked about him reading widely. And I remember that you know one day, like there was a couple books. One, he was reading a book called The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History by John and Barry. Now, he read this before COVID. But as COVID started, you know, becoming you know, more of a threat to the mission in Afghanistan, he went back and reviewed his notes. And what that was able to do was he was able to ask the right questions to get the right resources in play in order to mitigate the risk of that. And so, you know, from that example, I learned about the importance of like not necessarily reading things that are in your field, but reading widely and then being able to pull those things in, you know, when you need them. Another example, he was reading about the building of the Panama Canal, again, naturally curious. And in that story, it talked about how once they focused on the housing conditions, the food, you know, the pay for the workers, they were able to keep the workers on task of building the Panama Canal. But prior to that, like the turnover was so high, they weren't making any progress. And so he was able to start applying that to the ANDSF at the time, the Afghan National Security Forces. And making sure that, you know, coaching their headquarters to make sure that the pay was good. You know, they were clothed, they were fed, they were properly housed, they were paid. Because he recognized that in order to make that institution institutionally viable, that was something that we needed to focus on. Less tactics, more of keeping guys there. And so, again, just this idea of reading outside your career field and bringing the ideas in. The other thing that you talked about was, uh, I loved it, the term you used, was it the, the theatric? Innovation theater. Yeah, yeah, innovation theater, because, you know, we do that a lot. Like, we will go to conferences. I've been in organizations where people go to conferences nonstop because it feels good to talk about the problem, to admire the problem. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, is what you're doing making the boat go faster? Is what you're doing actually making progress towards your goal? Or it just feels good. You're not really doing the work. You're just talking about the work. So I really appreciate you bringing up that point. Yeah. And to the boat goes fast a bit. One of the things that innovation lends itself to is, you know, measuring time. And so for us, our master metric was just like, well, how long does it take to get into the user's hands? So, you know, we were averaging from somebody coming in, you know, almost like a first contact. It was like nine weeks from that person stepping into the door to a pilot being with them, you know, in their hands and then nine months to sort of contract being signed. And, you know, in defense terms, you know, some people are like, that's pretty fast. But like as a user that's been out on operations and seen 
you know, seen ISIS use drones to drop like 30 mic mic, it feels achingly slow. And so you appoint a time, like all measures are wrong, but, you know, really focusing on, is this accelerating what we need to do? I, I can't encourage that enough. Hey folks, it's Joe here, and I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is the place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army1 and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. I want to ask, one of the things that uh, you shared with me prior to us doing this interview were your principles, your operating principles at the J-Hub. And so I was wondering, would you be able to share some of those today with us? Of course, Joe. So I think, you know, one of the things that distinguishes elite teams that they do the basics outstandingly well. And, uh, you know, over the years, I've tried to use operating principles to be explicit about what those basics are. For the J-Hub, there are eight. They're on a single piece of paper. And in a way, you know, that piece of paper is trying to cultivate the culture you want. I think leaders are, you know, they're architects of culture. And that one page is a sort of blueprint. You know, and perhaps the other thing that writing it down also serves is that it forces you to think, you know, take cognitive toil to chisel your principles into a few pithy sentences to decide what to leave in and, you know, more importantly, what to leave out. Again, it's another exercise in, in focus and determining, you know, what's important. And as you gave me a heads up that you were going to sort of ask me on these, I've actually pulled it up in front of me. So perhaps the easiest thing is just to read out a couple of principles you know, just to give you a flavor. Like the first one was deliver results. And it said, uh, you know, the last line of Commander Stratcom's innovation charter puts it simply, an innovation will not be judged as success unless it delivers capability into the hands of the user. And I went on to say, you know, we exist to deliver significantly better solutions, obsess about solving for the user and your annual report will take care of itself. And, you know, I wanted to put deliver results as the number one operating principle for a reason, because, you know, it's, it's the most important. You can't claim to be innovating if you're not delivering. And, and frankly, nobody's going to follow you if you don't deliver the results. It doesn't matter how nice you are. And then, a, you know, a second final one, just by way of example, is we talked about it briefly, you know, think 10x. It went like this. It goes, uh, think 10x, thinking small is a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's why one of your project needs to be a massive bet, one that makes the user's life not incrementally better, but 10 times better. One that, if pulled off, will attract national recognition. Now, like in between the lines there, national recognition in the UK and the military often means getting recognized with uh, sort of um, an honor, an award. For example, they call it, one might be, you know, member of the British Empire and was hugely proud, you know, during uh, 
my time that we had three of our folk who were recognized in this way. You know, they go to the palace and they get their award. And, you know, this was a warrant officer that found some technology that reduced the speed at which we're communicating by half. This was a guy from the RAF who was just like a human roller deck of uh, medical contacts that brought a sort of means of telemedicine into the way that we work, which ended up proving really valuable as we went into the pandemic. And then, you know, James Coop, who I sort of spoke about that did this coding scheme. And I just linked that like final bit. The guys that did this, Dan Bird, Marcus, James Coote, you asked earlier about, you know, how can leaders do innovation in their organization? I think it's really important to celebrate the success of the people that are in your team. You know, you want to create an environment where if they come and join your team, you know, they'll be able to achieve things that they wouldn't be able to do in any other walk of life in the military in terms of innovation. Yeah, I want to talk about one of your principles that uh, just kind of really stood out to me. That was the obligation to dissent. I want to just have a brief discussion on that one because I feel like a lot of times in military organizations, like we get so stuck to the org chart, to hierarchy, to rank, and we're sometimes scared to speak up. So why is that one so important? Because ultimately the only way that you're going to achieve innovation is by proposing something that is different to the status quo. And so, you know, you've got to have the courage to say, hey, look, the way that we're currently doing business in this fashion isn't right. And hey, I think I've got a better idea. We're an organization that is in uniform and sort of made to be uniformed by design. And so having the ability to sort of break some of that mold with people that are prepared to challenge and question the status quo is really important. It also links to, you know, what we said earlier about beware of the hippo, you know, and the example of James that did the coding scheme. And so far that the last sentence of that obligation to dissent principle was just two words. And that was challenge me. You know, you gotta you gotta be explicit with your team to ask to be challenged. And then more importantly, when they do, you know, you've got to effectively thank them for raising that so that other people can see that, you know, you welcome that challenge. And perhaps if I was to write again, you know, I wouldn't say challenge me because it almost sounds like it's combative. You know, what you're really trying to do is work together as a team to come up with a better way of doing stuff, you know, and that's all. And and that's a team sport. You're not going to do it all yourself. Yeah. And you, you also wrote in there, you said, you know, that dissent is like a stress test for ideas. And I just love that concept of looking at it that way, because a lot of times, you know, we share an idea and somebody says, well, that's stupid or whatever. And our ego takes over and our feelings get hurt or we get upset, you know, because, hey, I'm the boss. Why won't they listen? But if you look at it as dissent is an opportunity to stress test your idea, it's making sure that, you know, that your idea is actually viable. Because I think the worst thing a leader can do is not listen to anybody go out there and execute. And it turns out it was a horrible plan that nobody pushed back on. And so I really appreciate us diving into that one a little bit. Now, you mentioned that we're all uniform people that have to do uniform things. And in military organization, there is always a higher level of bureaucracy to navigate. Like everybody has a boss. So do you have any recommendations for leaders who, you know, want to push their innovation forward, like how to pitch it to the boss, how to navigate bureaucracy, but something to push past that level that's sitting right above us. 
Yeah, sure. So I think that, you know, there's a bit around a mindset and a method that allows you and the sort of line goes, you know, think big, start small, scale fast. And effectively, you know, on method, what that is doing is that's pulling out of particularly, you know, the software development world where they talk about minimal viable products. So, you know, this is just a prototype. It's the smallest experiment that you can run to validate your assumptions on whether the thing that you're trying to bring to the user is, is useful or not. And by doing that, you're starting to sort of leave a breadcrumb trail of success, you know, and, and those small successes are currency. And they allow you to go forward and say, hey, look, I've proven some success now. Going back to the point of trying to get people's attention, now can we talk about X or Y or Z? So to give you an example, the first ever uh, sort of product that we took to users in the J-Hub was an open source intelligence tool. And it effectively had a very sophisticated bit of AI that scraped all the different open source platforms. And then when it recognized that an event was happening, it would shoot you a message and say, hey, this is kicking off. And I remember at the time when we spoke to the team and I said, right, you know, this was on meeting the company in terms of think big, start small, scale fast. I was like, 30 days, 30 days from this meeting until we have this capability into the hands of the user. This was our very first gig. And everyone's like, it's not possible. And it was just like sheer ruthless intensity of effort and focus. In the end, I had to slightly rechange the marketing from 30 days to 30 working days. But in the end, we got there. And that thing, going back to like delivering results, that gave us something to talk about. It showed that we had a bit of credibility and allowed us to start having a conversation with the seniors to say, hey, I need a bit more resource and take it more seriously. And I think I just like linked to that is, we've got to acknowledge that we are in a hierarchy. And therefore, the obvious remark is, well, try and get the support of the most senior person you can find. You heard me speak about General Patrick and General Chris, which with the J-Hub, one of our sort of operating principles was commanded at the highest level. I'm extremely fortunate that this small sort of then 10-man team, you know, effectively the two-up was a four-star. And if I got time, I'd, I'd love to just tell one story about what I think is the best example of uh, getting a senior to support you're, you. You're the guest of honor today, Henry. So if you want to tell another story, go for it. Hey, so it's about a guy called David Sterling, who back in 1941, July 1941, he was on crutches and he hopped over a fence, which was guarding the uh, headquarters of the Middle East Division for the British Army. And he was trying to get in to see a three-star general as a second lieutenant, a 25-year-old second lieutenant, to pitch his idea about a behind the enemy lines raiding force. And that turned out to be what's now called the SAS or the Special Air Service. And I think there is probably no better example of the sort of the audacity needed, you know, the obligation to dissent and the sort of sheer neck of realizing that, hey, you are in a hierarchy, but if you're a second lieutenant and you can pitch well and you've got a vision, then, hey, you might just get the resources you need to take your plan off the ground. The bit I worry about now, Joe, is who's going to be the next 25-year-old second lieutenant that jumps over a fence and successfully gets in front of three-star to pitch his idea. I hope we still have that in our organizations. I think we do. I think we do. I think they'll just keep coming along. I've had the privilege of meeting several through the From the Green Notebook uh, that, that have reached out. So I feel like you know both of our militaries are in good hands. One thing I want to point out in your story, and I don't know if this was purposeful or this is how you operate, but 
it was the saying that we're going to have something in, in 30 days. And then you, you said you changed it to 30 working days. I read something that Thomas Edison used to do. He used to announce to the press, like when he was going to have an invention complete. And in doing so, he like gave himself a timeline to get it done. Like that was kind of like the forcing function for him to set his mind on the goal. And so that's kind of what I do is I'll announce something. I may not even have like a plan laid out yet, but I have just now committed myself to meeting that timeline, kind of taking the Thomas Edison approach is just throw it out there and now you have to do it. And also like, if you don't throw it out there, if you don't have an explicit target, you know, if you, the real geeky side of like smart objectives and all that, like if you don't have a target, you're guaranteed to miss it. You know, so being explicit about what you're trying to do, you know, puts the onus on you, forces you to make decisions as you go down the road, say, you know, do I spend my time doing A or B? What's going to make the boat go faster in terms of achieving this target? It's really important that, you know, we as leaders and the people that we have the privilege of leading are very clear eyed about what exactly it is we're trying to accomplish. Who is going to do what by when? That's always like the simple question. I love that. It's a very simple question that drives very complex operations. Um, but sometimes we just kind of skip that. I think when we skip it, uh, we just, everybody ends up hanging out in the, uh, the innovation theater. And all these things, you know, Jay, like uh, to pick up on what you're saying, like all this stuff is common sense. Here's where all the cliches come in, you know, just because it's common sense doesn't mean it's common practice. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. And it's that, it's the discipline to do the basics outstandingly well, which for me, you know, makes the difference. We just in the podcast right there, Henry. That was, some, uh, that was some wisdom. Okay, final question for you. You know, you and I, we've both talked in the past and exchanged book ideas, and I know you're an avid reader. So, you know, if someone's like, hey, like, I really want to understand this innovation thing a little bit better. I want to learn more about it so I can kind of adopt some of these principles and bring them into my organization. What are a few books that you would recommend somebody pick up? Yeah, sure. So, um, be sort of slightly controversial here. First of all, don't read any innovation books. You know, read some of the basic stuff that's really going to help improve your game. So, you know, I give you a couple of examples. You know, Richard Rumelt, good strategy, bad strategy. The kernel of a strategy, what's do the diagnosis, get your guiding principle, coherent actions. You know, that is universal to innovation or, or anything else. Equally, another one would be, you know, Andy Grove, high output management. You know, he was the guy that set up Intel. We were talking earlier about sort of uh, targets and metrics. You know, he's the, the sort of father of managing by objectives or, or what Google now and a lot of the tech companies would call OKRs, objectives and key results. And then on like the leadership side, you know, good friend, and we, we've spoken about him, Joe, you know, James Kerr, he uses the sort of story of the All Blacks to talk about leadership. It's not a book about rugby. It's a book about leadership. And actually, that was the Miller story I wanted to quickly tell you about. So in that, he's got a... Uh, a great line in there that the Kiwis have, which is called sweep the sheds. And that's at, at the end of every game, after all the sort of, uh, they've had their debrief and all the players have walked out, you know, it is the most senior players on the team that sweep out the sheds or what they call the changing rooms from all the mud. And uh, when I was out in Afghanistan, you know, used to do a bit of shooting with General Miller on the range. And, you know, at the end of the range day, you know, there you'd see, all of us and him, you know, the six-year-old dude down on one knee, picking up the brass, and, you know, he'd look at you and he'd go, just sweeping the sheds. And I just saw his great leadership oh, by great. example. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, that's a great story, Henry. I appreciate you sharing. That. There's also an outrageous shot, which is really annoying as well. I know. I know. I, I remember one time I was shooting and I was really proud of myself. I finally punched a hole in the target after months of, of him and, and the team working with me. But I had like three stray shots on there. And uh, yeah, you know what shots he focused on. And so he, he was always pushing me to become a better shooter. So those were the non-innovation books, but let me just give you uh, perhaps three things to consider on the innovation side. So one is like how Google works. There's a great overview by some of the sort of seniors in Google about how you know the whole of that org has been geared up to consistently deliver innovation. Another one would be, it's a shorter read, The Ambidextrous Organization by a guy called Professor Charles O'Reilly. You can find it on Harvard Business Review. And you know here he talks about the real dilemma for any organization, which is how do you be ambidextrous? That is, on the one hand, how do you continue to exploit the current business model, deliver for today? And at the same time, how do you explore new business models that are going to disrupt the way you do things and continue to lead to growth? And then the final thing I just offer up is Anything and Everything by Steve Blank, especially Four Steps to the Epiphany. We spoke earlier about they don't teach you innovation at school. It's not on the syllabus. In that book, there's a really clear process that talks you through how you can search for and then execute new ventures. Well, Henry, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're you're very busy getting ready for command. And then, you know, I'll, I'll take command next summer and then hopefully <laughs> sometime in there, you and I are having a pint somewhere together in Europe. For sure, Joe. Come visit. Don't be a stranger. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world, you can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out and our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my hands. Strong like a tree. There's roots where I stand. Oh, I've been running from the Shoot me down